Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. You know, when you're one of six kids, as I was, I guess it's inevitable that you're going to be forgotten from time to time. Uh, as happened when I was about eight years old, and my dad took me to our local church for our boys club program one weekday evening, and he dropped me off about seven o'clock in the evening. He was supposed to pick me up about 8.30. I went in, enjoyed the time with the boys, uh, and about 8.30, the leaders dismissed us, and they kicked us out of the building, told us, go to the parking lot, wait for your parents. You, you could do that in those days, you know, not worry that your kids were going to be abducted or something. And so uh, we were kind of dumped out of the building, and the leaders went back inside to plan the next week's meeting. And the parents started coming to pick up their sons. One car after another came into the parking lot and picked up a boy or two and drove off until I was the last one left. It was maybe 8.40 now, and my dad hadn't come. I was starting to get a little worried that maybe he'd forgotten me, but I kept looking hopefully down Burnham Avenue to, to see if I could see the familiar headlights of my dad's old Pontiac, but they never came. So now it's getting to be about 8.45, and I decided, well, maybe I could, should go in the building and call my dad. I know where the phone is, and so I went to the church door and tugged on it, but it was locked. It had locked behind the leaders when they went back in the building. So all I could do is sit there and wait, you know, sitting on the curb, waiting for my dad to come, shivering in the cold, you know, poor little Dave. And, and, uh, and, and uh, finally, it was about nine o'clock, you know, and the leaders came out of the building and they said, what are you still doing here? And I said, well, I think my dad forgot to pick me up. Can I go call him? And they said, no, don't worry about it. Just climb in the car here with Ranger Earl. He'll take you home. And so Ranger Earl drove me right to my back door got out of the car, went up to the back door, but the house was all dark. And I tugged on the, the back doorknob and it was locked. So all I could do was ring the doorbell and, and I rang the doorbell and now lights start coming out of the house. I hear my dad stumbling out to the back porch. He looks out there, he says, what are you doing out there? I said, you forgot to pick me up. He said, oh, for Pete's sake, he unlocked the door, let me in the house, shut the door and nary a word was ever spoken about it again. Except that it must have scarred me because here I am over 50 years later still talking about it. Well, fast forward about 50 years, and now it's my mom's turn, right? She's in the throes of Alzheimer's. We, we know it. She's slowly leaving us, and it's very painful to watch. But my mom was always really, really good about remembering our birthdays, all six of us. She knew not only the day we were born, she knew the hour and the minute we were born. She could tell us our exact birth weight right down to the ounce. She could tell us how long we had measured and, and all the circumstances around our, our births. And, 
And we could be sure that we would receive well into our adulthood a birthday card right on our birthday, and then she would call us later in the day to wish us a happy birthday. And finally came the birthday when no card arrived in the mail. And I thought, that's all right. Maybe mom mailed it a day or two late. It'll still come, but she'll call me later in the day. And the phone call didn't come. So I picked up the phone and I called her to see if she would remember my birthday. And the conversation went something like, hi, mom, this is Dave. And she answered, oh, hi, Dave, as if she wasn't too sure who Dave was. We had a little chit-chat, a little conversation about this, that, the other thing, and then hung up and I realized she never mentioned my birthday. She had forgotten me. That's a very strange thing to be forgotten by your own mother. It's understandable, can't blame her. It was Alzheimer's was taking her memory away. But it's a very strange thing to be forgotten by the people who should know you best. I don't know how many of us might feel like we've been forgotten here today. Perhaps you feel forsaken by a spouse. You feel lonely in your own marriage. Or maybe you feel forsaken, forgotten by a parent who who left your family and is now enjoying life with his new family. Maybe you feel forgotten by adult children who have busy lives of their own, but you know, seem to rarely find time to pick up the phone and call you. Or maybe you feel forgotten by you know, grandchildren who used to love to come to grandma's house, but now they're older and they would prefer to just stay home and hang out with their friends. And worst of all is when you feel like God has forgotten you. You know, those times when life really stinks and you cry out to God, but he seems nowhere to be found. Well, today we're going to consider what hope there is for those times in life when you feel forgotten, especially for those times in life when you feel as even God has forgotten you. Imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph. We've been talking about Joseph now for several weeks from the later chapters of the book of Genesis. You know, imagine what it would be like to be Joseph. Your own brothers have turned on you and sold you into slavery in Egypt. Your father has given up on you and and has supposed that you're dead by now. Your boss's wife has falsely accused you for coming on to her. The boss whom you have loyally served believes her and has thrown you into prison because of it. Now, the keeper of the prison sees that the hand of the Lord is upon you and, and puts you in charge of most everything that goes on there in the jail. Still, it's been 11 years since you've been ripped away from your family and you spent all of that time either as a slave or as a prisoner. Do you think Joseph had good reason to feel as if he'd been forsaken, forgotten by God? And yet, it seems no matter what happens to him, Joseph remains faithful. Just remains faithful to do what it is that God has given him to do in his present situation, whatever that situation is. And and look what happens at the beginning of Genesis chapter 40. It says, sometime after this, after his imprisonment, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker 
committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So Joseph gets a couple new prison mates, the chief cupbearer uh, cup and the chief baker of Egypt. Now, the chief cupbearer, that was quite a responsible position because the uh, chief cupbearer was the one who opened the wine and tasted it before it went to Pharaoh. He was, in fact, in charge of ensuring the quality of everything that was put in front of Pharaoh. He had to be a trustworthy person because uh, he, the Pharaoh trusted his life to this person. In fact, that became a relationship oftentimes that was so close that the chief cupbearer was often not just a, a food taster, but was a confidant to the king, became like a chief advisor to the king. In some cases, almost like a chief of staff to the king. Uh, so he's an important guy. Then there's the chief baker. Now, the chief baker was the one who was in charge of all the baked goods that would be put in front of the king. So that was a responsible position. It may be that the chief baker was also responsible for all of the the baked goods that were offered by the Pharaoh as offerings to his gods. And so being the chief baker may have had some kind of priestly connotations to the job as well. He also was an important guy. And yet these two had committed some offense against Pharaoh. Uh, unlike Joseph, who did not done nothing to deserve his imprisonment, these two guys are guilty of something and, and they deserve to be here. Joseph does not. And to add to the injustice of it all, because they're VIP prisoners, the captain of the guard puts Joseph in charge of their welfare. Joseph is charged with taking good care of them because the captain of the guard knows that one or other of these guys could be reinstated to their positions of influence and he doesn't want them reporting back to Pharaoh that they were mistreated while they were in prison. And so to ensure that they have the best possible experience while they're in prison, he, he puts them in the charge of this Hebrew prisoner. Joseph is made to babysit these guys. It says in verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So consider the humiliation of it all, right? I mean, not only are you a slave forsaken by your brothers, not only have you been framed by your boss's wife, not only have you been thrown into prison by a boss you have loyally served, but now you're being made to serve your fellow prisoners. You're a slave of other prisoners. I mean, how low can you go? This is as humiliating and as God-forsaken a situation as anyone could experience this side of the cross, I suppose. And yet, what does Joseph do in response? He doesn't appear to complain. He doesn't capitulate to these humiliating circumstances, doesn't kind of curl up into a fetal ball and, and, and refuse to function. He, he doesn't rage against the system, but rather he just goes on serving. He, he goes on doing his best work in the situation without seeming regard for the unfairness of it all. And it seems to me that in this, Joseph teaches us something important. And that is that you cannot be humiliated by man if you humble yourself before God. You can't be humiliated by a man if you have humbled yourself before God. 
if you have already humbled yourself before God, if you in essence have said, Lord, here I am, I am surrendered to your will, ready to do whatever you would have me to do, then what others might regard as a humiliation, you will accept as part of God's will for you in this moment. If I'm humble before God, then nothing anyone else does to me will humiliate me. So think of Joseph, right? I mean, his brothers have sold him into slavery, and what did he do? All he did in response to that was serve faithfully in Potiphar's house. His boss's wife falsely accuses and imprisons him, and what does he do? In response, all he does is, is become a model prisoner, so much so that the captain of the guard puts him in charge of virtually everything that goes on in the prison, including the welfare of these two VIP prisoners. How could Joseph keep rising above the humiliations to which he was subjected and not rage against them? It's because he was humble before God who in his youth had shown Joseph that he would, he would raise him up at the proper time. He endured humiliation in the belief that God would take care of him in due time. And so Joseph did not take this latest assignment as a humiliation because he had already humbled himself before God, trusting in his sovereign plan. Think of what humiliations you may have suffered. Maybe someone in your family has taken unfair advantage of you. Maybe your boss has given you a job that's beneath you. It should have gone to somebody with much less seniority. You shouldn't be made to do this dirty job. Or maybe you have a coach who, who chewed you out in front of the whole team for something that you didn't do. You can receive these things as a humiliation and become angry and resentful over them, or you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and accept these circumstances as part of his plan for you in this moment. You can wallow in humiliation or you can humbly rise above your situation trusting that God is still in charge. That's what Joseph appears to do. Instead of feeling humiliated by being asked to serve these guilty prisoners, he takes on this assignment as part of his service to God, and that sets him up to succeed in what happens next. Look at verse 5 where it says, And one night after they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Now, as Christians, you know, we don't put a lot of weight on dreams. We, we believe that God has clearly spoken to us through his son and in his word, the Bible, and that's not to say that God can't speak to people through dreams, only that we don't rely on them to hear from God because God has already spoken. And whatever we think God is saying to somebody in a dream must now be tested against Scripture because God will never contradict himself. But pagan cultures like the Egyptians and the Babylonians took dreams seriously. They wrote down dreams in large books on the assumption that the gods were speaking in these dreams. And so they would write down dreams and then they would write down what happened to the person who dreamed this dream. And, and they, they wrote these things down in book after book after book. And so there were experts in these dream books who if you had a dream, you would go to them and, and they would say, oh, that reminds me of this dream that some, so-and-so once dreamt and here's what happened to that person and here's what's likely to happen to you. So they took these dreams seriously. The, the cupbearer and the baker who in Joseph's charge each dreamt a dream 
And it's assumed that each dream has an interpretation, but there's no one there with expertise to interpret the dreams. And so they're upset. They've received messages, but they don't know what they mean. And they're understandably troubled by this until Joseph takes notice. Look at verse six where it says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Joseph, uh, Pharaoh's officers who are with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? What's with you guys? You know, it's amazing to me that Joseph gives a care that these guys are troubled by the dreams they had. I mean, if I had been treated as Joseph has been treated here, made not just a prisoner, but a servant to the other prisoners in the prison, I think I might have been tempted to say, poor babies. <laughs> you know, they had a bad dream and now they're upset. Serves them right. You know, they deserve to be here. I don't. They're having a bad day. Ask me if I care, right? But Joseph doesn't do that. That's not Joseph. It's amazing that he pays close attention to these guys that are all mopey and sad. And it's amazing that he cares enough to ask them why. They said to him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. I love Joseph's perspective here. I mean, he could have resented having to serve these VIP prisoners. He could have drawn the line and said, look, my job is to make sure that your basic needs are met, but don't expect me to care about your feelings, right? I, I'm your slave, not your mother. But instead, you know, Joseph asks, what's wrong with you guys? Why? Because he ultimately doesn't serve them, but he serves God. And this is the assignment that he takes has been given to him by God. What he does, he does for God, not just for them. And the clarity of that comes out very strongly in verse eight, where he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. So Joseph the dreamer now invites these dreamers to share their dreams with him. And the service he will perform for them will not be something he claims credit for, but, but he declares it a work of God. He gives to them a, a gift as God's agent that they could never demand from him. He does not serve them, but rather he serves as an agent of God in their lives. And here's where Joseph's example teaches us another important lesson. If the first lesson was, you cannot be humiliated by man if you humble yourself before God, the second lesson is, you'll be no man's slave if you choose to serve God. You'll be no man's slave if you choose to serve God. See, what distinguished Joseph from virtually all of his peers was that in all of this, the Lord was with him. And Joseph served the Lord. People often treated him as a slave. His brothers sold him into slavery. Potiphar bought him. His boss's wife bossed him around. The captain of the guard made him a servant to these VIP prisoners. But in every instance, Joseph distinguished himself as one blessed by God and dedicated to serving him. And in this case, he's about to interpret these dreams, not because he's their slave, but because he serves God. Is it about to let God work through him to accomplish God's purposes in the lives of these men? What if as a follower of Jesus, we adopt such an attitude? 
as this. What if instead of moaning when your parents insist that you clean your room before you go out? What if instead of groaning when your coach tells you to run another lap? What instead of griping about how your spouse or your kids don't appreciate you? What if instead of resenting it when the boss gives you a job that you think is beneath you? What if instead of complaining, I'm not your slave, what if you heed Paul's words in Colossians 3.23 when he said, whatever you do, do your work for the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work for the Lord. You see, if I make a deliberate choice to serve God, no man can ever truly enslave me. I'll clean my room as a service rendered to God who asks me to honor my parents. I'll run that lap in the strength God supplies. I'll thank God that he gave me my spouse and my kids and the strength to provide for them. I'll see Jesus standing behind my unreasonable boss and I'll do what I'm asked to do for Jesus' sake. Even if my boss isn't worthy of my devotion, Jesus is. Whatever you do, do your work for the Lord. So instead of hardening his heart toward these two undeserving men, Joseph rises above the unfairness of the situation in service to God who alone interprets dreams. They said to them, we've had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. This dream has a fantastical kind of time-lapse photography feel to it. The verbs in the Hebrew happen in, in quick order, one after the other, as if to say, this happened and that happened and the other thing happened and it all happened, you know, kind of in this dream sequence. The, the, the vine sprouts these three branches, the branches bud and then they blossom and, and then they develop grapes and the grapes ripen and I, and I squeezed the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and, and I presented the cup to Pharaoh. And just as rapidly, Joseph gives the interpretation. Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. This phrase, lift up your head and restore, means that Pharaoh will take you from this lowly place and put you back in a position of favor and influence where you will resume your former work. And that's good news, right? The cupbearer is relieved. He doesn't have to worry anymore that there's something ominous or bad going to happen to him. In fact, what's been predicted is, is good news. He's going to be restored by Pharaoh to his old job. Now, in return, Joseph asks for one kindness. He says in verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. When, when things go the way that I've predicted and you're restored to your position of favor, will you do me a favor and mention me to Pharaoh? Get me out of this place? Please do this kindness, mention me to Pharaoh so that, and so get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. In other words, he's saying, I didn't do anything to, to deserve being here. I mean, I was stolen from my homeland, so I shouldn't be in Egypt at all. And then I was falsely accused and then been put into prison. 
I suppose every prisoner would protest that he's innocent, but Joseph is saying, in my case, it's actually true. And he's, I think what he's saying to the, the cupbearer is, look, if, if you get Pharaoh to get me out of here, you're not going to, you're not going to regret it because I'm not going to be any, any mass murderer or something. I'm, I'm an innocent guy. Just remember me when you, when you are restored to your position and, and you're standing before Pharaoh. Now, we don't have any record of what the cupbearer said in response to Joseph's request, but the, the baker sure has been paying attention to all of this. And it says in verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. Workers often carried loads on their head in Egypt. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. Now, you know, when it says all sorts of baked goods, well, this could be quite a, kind of a cornucopia of, of bakery products. Uh, the Egyptians are known to have baked 37 different kinds of cakes and 57 different kinds of breads. And so there's this virtual bread feast in this topmost basket, and he's, he's carrying it to Pharaoh. But there's something ominous about this dream in that the mission is never accomplished. Pharaoh never gets the bread. The birds eat the, the, the bread instead. And Joseph says to the, to the baker that he too will have his head lifted up by Pharaoh, but in a very different way. Verse 18, and Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation, the three baskets are three days, just like the other dream. In three days, the Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Not so good an outcome to this this dream, and notice that Joseph doesn't bother asking the baker to remember him before Pharaoh because he isn't going to live. No point asking him for a favor. Well, it's one thing to interpret dreams. It's another thing to have those interpretations come true. And in verse 20, it says, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just as Joseph had predicted, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So what does all this tell you? Well, for one thing, it says that Joseph genuinely has the blessing of God on his life. And God had not only given him dreams as a young man, but now he's given him insight into the dreams of others. And you would think this would be kind of Joseph's get-out-of-jail-free card, right? That, that the, the chief cupbearer would say, hey, Pharaoh, you've got to meet this Hebrew guy that I met in prison. He was the one who told us exactly what would happen to us. He predicted that the, that the baker would be hanged by you, and he predicted that I would be restored to a position of favor. Uh, you, you know, we, we ought to let this guy out of prison. But he doesn't do that. In fact... The tragic ending of our chapter is verse 23 where it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. That's how the chapter ends. Joseph is a forgotten man. Think about Joseph must have felt about this. He must have expected his release, right? I mean, things went exactly the way he said. He knew that the chief cupbearer had been restored to his position, and he was expecting the chief cupbearer would have gone to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would have talked to the, the, the captain of the guard, and, and he expected the captain of the guard to come, you know, opening the jail cell door and, and letting him free. 
But day after day after day, nothing happened. You can imagine his disappointment. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Could the chief cupbearer actually have forgotten Joseph? I suppose it's possible. You know, in, in all of the flurry of activity around being restored to his office and getting back in the swing of things, he might have forgotten that Joseph had asked him to remember him before Pharaoh. Or it's also possible that the chief cupbearer kind of conveniently forgot Joseph on purpose, sort of keeping an ace up the sleeve, you know, for whatever a time might come that Pharaoh would need an interpreter of dreams. And he could say, hey, Pharaoh, I know a guy. I know a guy, right? And that would make him look good in the right moment. But for Joseph, I mean, this is just pure misery. Joseph has already been either a slave or prisoner for 11 years now, ripped away from his family. And we know from the next chapter that he will remain in prison for two more years. Imagine what it must have felt like to be forgotten this way. To feel so forsaken, not just by the king's cupbearer, but by God himself. But here's what we know to be true. Because if you know Joseph's story, you know what's coming next. You know that God is still in control of his life. And God's timing is perfect. And the reward to come will far outweigh whatever humiliation Joseph would have to experience for the next two years. In the meantime, God is teaching Joseph important leadership lessons that he will soon need. Joseph is learning there in prison sensitivity to those in need and a commitment to do what is right and just for the oppressed. The cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but the Lord never would. And here's the third great lesson I think this passage teaches us from the example of Joseph, and that is you'll never be forgotten if you choose to wait on God. You'll never be forgotten if you've chosen to wait on God. Maybe like Joseph, you feel stuck. You feel like, you know, look, I've been faithful. I've been doing all the right things. You've been serving God right where you are, but you don't feel like where you are is where you belong. You're convinced that God has more in store for you than this, but the ones who can open doors for you have seemingly forgotten you, and now you wonder if even God has forgotten you. I'm telling you today, don't lose hope. Like Joseph, persist in doing good, right where God has put you, even when nothing seems to be happening, when nothing seems to be changing. Remember that the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us to save us from our sin will not fail to give us whatever else we need. That's the promise of scripture. Remember that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who've been called according to his purpose. Even in the, the trials of life, God is at work to help us be conformed to the likeness of his son. And never forget that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You'll never be forgotten if you choose to wait on the Lord and trust in his perfect timing. I mean, what powerful lessons. The example of Joseph teaches us today. You cannot be humiliated by man if you humble yourself before God. 
You'll be no manslave if you choose to serve God, and you'll never be forgotten if you choose to wait on God. So what does all this say to those of us who feel like we've been forgotten today? Forgotten by friends, forgotten by family, forgotten by God himself. Well, we leave Joseph in prison, a forgotten man today, but we know that God won't leave him there forever. And Joseph remains faithful, humble, and yielded, and he simply trusts God to bring him out when the time is right. Perhaps the Apostle Peter summed up the hope that is ours. He summed it up best of all. What what our hope is when it feels like we've been forgotten, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he will lift you up in due time. I want you to read that out loud with me. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he will lift you up in due time. Joseph is a beautiful example of what this verse is talking about. He humbles himself under God's mighty hand and waits for God to lift him up. That's a perspective on life we'd all do well to develop, especially when things aren't going your way. When your life is in the pits and and you don't feel like you deserve it, when you're waiting on God to bring about a change but it just doesn't ever seem to come, when it feels as if you've been forgotten even by God, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. And you say, well, pastor, that makes a fine Bible story, but what's that look like in real life? I think it kind of looks like NFL quarterback Nick Foles. I don't know if you remember his story, but early in his career, Nick Foles enjoyed success as the starting quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. But with a new head coach in town who fancied a different style of quarterback play, Foles found himself on the bench with no real likelihood of returning to a starting role under this head coach. He thought about leaving football altogether and going into youth ministry, as a matter of fact. But he got a chance to to play for another team, again, as a backup quarterback. Went to Kansas City for a while. And then when the Eagles changed head coaches once more, they re-signed him to be backup to a hot young new quarterback named Carson Wentz who was having an MVP caliber season when he was injured with three games to go. The Eagles had basically already made the playoffs and and Foles came in to sort of pick up the pieces and try to limp into the playoffs. The first three games were pretty rough. Eagles fans were kind of despairing of, you know, a great season that had quickly gone downhill and would likely end in the first round of the playoffs. But somehow in the playoffs, uh, Nick Foles sort of found his rhythm and started playing like crazy. And, and before you know it, the Eagles found themselves facing off in Super Bowl 52 against the vaunted New England Patriots and their greatest of all time quarterback, Tom Brady. Nobody gave the Eagles a chance. Uh, the, the odds were heavily against the Eagles in favor of the Patriots. But then the game started and Foles started to play way over his head, it seemed. It was a shootout of a game with the Eagles coming out on top, Super Bowl champions, and Nick Foles, the backup quarterback, being named the Super Bowl most valuable player. And then started the controversy in Philadelphia. 
All of us Eagles fans watched with fascination, asking who's going to be the Eagles starting quarterback when the 2018 season starts. And it quickly became apparent that the Eagles head brass was committed to Carson Wentz, that when he came back from his surgery and was fully recovered, that he would return to the starting quarterback role. And the only quarterback ever to bring a Super Bowl victory to the city of Philadelphia would be relegated to the bench again. Now, many people were surprised that Foles took this relegation to backup so well. But here's what he says about that in his 2018 book, Believe It. Foles writes, what they saw as a riches to rags sports story, I see as part of God's divine plan. I've said all along that my desire is to play for God's glory, not mine, and that's exactly what I plan to do. My unique path from backup to Super Bowl MVP, to back up again is a powerful message to share with people and God has given me an ideal platform to do that from. To cheerfully return to the backup role after reaching the pinnacle of the sport contradicts everything the world tells us about success, fame, money, and self-worth. To me, it's a tangible reminder that we are all called to humility and to a life of service. Some people might think I deserve a better deal, but it's not about what I deserve. It's never been about that. The truth is I've already been given far more than I deserve. A wonderful family, a job I love, grace and forgiveness, great friends, coaches and teammates. Everything I have is a gift from God and I'm thankful for all of it. I am where I am now because of God's grace and I'll continue to follow wherever he leads. And so may we, like Joseph, like Nick Foles, follow Jesus in humble faithfulness, trusting God that when life seems unfair, even when we feel forsaken, we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he will lift us up in his time. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the example of of great people of faith in Scripture. For the example of a guy, Joseph, who just, when life threw its worst at him, just kept faithfully serving right where he was. And Lord, some of us here today find ourselves in situations like that where we feel overlooked, forsaken, unappreciated, even forgotten. Some of us are wondering, where are you, Lord, in the midst of all of this? But I pray that you would help us to remember. To remember not just examples like like Joseph, but to remember Jesus himself, who was willing to be forsaken, willing to, to, to give his life on the cross, knowing that glory awaited him. And so, Lord, may we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, humbly serving right where we are. Even when nothing good seems to be coming of it, may we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, trusting you to lift us up in your time. Lord, may we do it gladly. May we do it humbly. May we do it faithfully. May we do it like Jesus, 
and may we bring him glory. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.